good morning, Jorge. How are you? Good morning, Karis. It's so good to be with you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for everybody who's listening in. This is my little brother, my hermanito. He's not my brother, but I like <laughs> to think of him as a brother because he's so amazing that uh, I've just joined his family. I'm still a part of my family, but I've joined his family. So um, Jorge, when I first um, met you, I was just so blown away about your story, especially your story of becoming a psychologist. Mm. You want to tell a little bit about how you came into finding this as a profession? Sure. So I've, I've always kind of been very clear in my soul that I had a purpose and that the purpose was to kind of help people on their way towards healing. And I think that the the influence of that for me was really my grandmother, my dad's mom, uh, who practiced uh, in in the state of Nayarit. And so being the oldest grandchild of her oldest son, I spent a lot of time with her, particularly when, you know, my parents, a young couple were having children. And so they would send me away to be with her while my mom got better, got well. I ended up spending quite a bit of time with her and really kind of watch people come to her, you know, for delivery, child deliveries, for psychological issues, for physical issues, and just her knowledge of plant medicine, her knowledge of the spirit world um, was just so fascinating to me. And I always kind of wondered, like, how is it that this woman who never went to school could barely write and read could have such knowledge, like what was she tapping into? Where was this knowledge coming from? Because she clearly operated in a very different world than the rest of my family or the rest of, you know, the people around her. So there was some sort of mystic uh, presence that Mm. she had with plants and animals and nature. And I was just fascinated by that. So I always wanted to be by her. I always wanted to be like her. And um, when I immigrated to the States at the age of nine years old and then just really started getting into school and started to like explore careers and all of that. The, the, the closest thing that I found to what my grandmother was doing was psychology, mm-hmm. at least in my child mind, you know, that's what I felt would be the closest thing. And so that's how I, you know, ended up getting into psychology, but clearly, I mean, obviously there's a lot of differences between curanderismo and, and uh, psychotherapy mm-hmm. and psychology, but, but wow. that's kind of what started me down that path. My dad's reaction was that I was basically wasting time. I was not uh, growing up and his desire for me was to maybe one day be a supervisor at his factory And, you know, that's the way that he sort of envisioned me doing better than him. Mm -hmm. And so my grandmother, who has always supported me, began to cry. And she said to me that she was concerned that I would go away to an institution that would tell me that my ancestors were uh, superstitious and uh, ignorant Mm -hmm. and that I would be sort of brainwashed to think that the traditions and the knowledge that I had received was ill-founded. And she said, you're going to be ashamed of who you are. You're going to grow ashamed of where you come from and you're going to become somebody else. 
And at that point, I was so insulted. I mean, here I am. I graduated from high school. I got on the honor roll and I'm going to college. And my family has all these reservations. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it wasn't until years later, you know, when you do get your degree and when you do start to practice that you realize the impact of racism, mm-hmm. institutional racism, the impact of colonization yeah. on people's minds. And, and, then, and then I got it. I'm like, oh, this is, this is what she was talking about. Wow, this is just sort of blowing my mind because it feels not very similar to my story per se, but very similar to my father's story. You know, when he talked about wanting to go away to college and his family kind of saying, well, initially it was kind of like, well, no, as a black man, you know, there are only going to be certain things you can do. So let's look at some other options um, where you can rise, you know, kind of to that next level or stature, if you will. But college, that's not going to be it. And um, it's kind of hard when you have to defy, you know, what our parents <laughs> believe. I know, yeah. I, even though I didn't have that same experience, if they were like, please go to college. And I was the one who went for one year and I was like, yeah, no, this isn't for me um, until I found my way several years later. And now you can't get me out of school. But <laughs> um, when you were... Um, you know, um, finding that there was this, you know, institutional and structural racism and stigma. How did you remain grounded in your culture? I went through that whole journey of like trying so hard to please the perceived power that I think I really became overly assimilated during my college years, you know, wearing the penny loafers and Mm -hmm. argyle sweaters and just like really being as straight laced as I possibly could, mm-hmm. you know, getting the good grades and all of that and changing my name to George or actually not changing my name to George. But when I was in grade school, the teachers started calling me George and I never bothered to correct them. Oh, wow. And so I just became I just became George. And it wasn't until I graduated from college that, you know, the the stuff that was promised wasn't coming. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. I didn't get accepted into the good old boys club. I didn't, doors didn't just open up for me. It was still, I was still seen primarily as a Mexican. Mm -hmm. And so that for me was a real kind of cold wake up realization. And then it wasn't until my first job, um, I was a a high school teacher, an alternative high school called Latino Youth, Mm -hmm. where we, you know, focused on teaching kids uh, that had been failed by the public school system. And were involved in gangs and whatnot. And they taught the uh, the curriculum was taught from a, a Paulo Fede pedagogy of the oppressed perspective. Wow. And um, I was introduced to this, you know, powerful writer and thinker and his whole idea of oppression and colonization and what happens to, uh, to what has happened to communities of color throughout the ages and how education has been used as a tool of oppression uh, of, of those that are marginalized. And it just blew my mind that somebody, you know, had so sim- simplistically put into words what I had experienced and had validated so much of my experiences. Wow. So for at that moment, I just, you know, I feel like my world opened up and, you know, and I, I became really 
invested in trying not only to preserve my identity as a Latino man, but to really preserve the ancestral teachings and to see them as sort of at the core of who I am. So for me, like, if I think about how I have felt so different in this culture and navigating through this system, what grounds me, what I go to is, okay, what, what was before all that? What was before mm-hmm. colonization? What was before that whole identity? And, and to me, the ancestral teachings, you know, really helped me get rooted in a consciousness that existed before this identity. And so that's kind of where I go to. That's what has helped me really kind of stay grounded and rooted in that tradition. Wow. That is really so powerful. You know, I think of the time I was at Temple University and I took my first um, African-American studies class, you know, with other students of color, you know, um, you know, led by, uh, you know, leaders in Afrocentrism, Amalefi, Asante, et cetera. It was this sort of hearkening back and being able to touch that and have it now have a different kind of meaning um, to, to move me forward. So yeah. preserving the identity and being grounded in the ancestral teachings is, is so critically important. Even if we lose sight of it, we can kind of, you know, touch back to it again, you know, especially exactly. if it's done with intention. Exactly. So how do you kind of intermix sort of psychology, Western psychology, and curanderismo? Well, well, I, I, I do think, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been really fascinated by trying to find the sort of common element that creates healing across cultures. I mean, I think that's the way that I've managed to boil it down to its essence. And, you know, I've had the privileges, you know, to travel to Africa and work with African shaman and and I've, you know, been to Peru and, and many places working with with uh, shamans and native healers. So there's there's some parallels, I think, that are are very, very much uh, in alignment with psychotherapy, the concept of psychotherapy and the concept of just medicine and healing as a whole. And we have to remember that, you know, uh, prior to our modern age of medicine, the doctor of past was really the philosopher. It was really the one that um, focused much more on understanding the forces and energies that create healing. And then the, the, the doctor, as we know today, was really considered more of a technician, right? A very specific mm. venue of medicine that is this Western idea of, of, of medicine. So, but, but really the idea of healing comes from a much more comprehensive view of energies that we don't always see, right? The balance of mind, body, and spirit, and how the person um, that is in front of you is manifesting that energy. And in what ways has that person gotten out of balance with their own ability to express that energy in a physical, mental, and spiritual realm? So the, so the idea of a healer in traditional medicine is really one that's just working with the realignment of the person's power to heal themselves. And I think that's very similar to what psychotherapy says about the power of the talking cure, which is through the idea of sitting with somebody and listening empathically 
and intuitively to what person is saying that you can understand where the barriers to unlocking their potential or their barriers to living a full life, what trauma, for example, has done in somebody's development. And that by identifying that, assessing, identifying, and really talking through that process, that you can get somebody to the next level of consciousness. You can get somebody to the next level of self-awareness. And if you change your self-awareness, you change your, your paradigm, then you change the lens, you change the frame through which you look at the world. And so you've, you've in essence, have healed from whatever it was that was blocking you. So the mm -hmm. ritual in psychotherapy is really the sitting down in a 45-minute session in somebody's couch and creating that sacred space. In, in um, ancestral medicine, it really is about more the, the ritualized, nonverbal expression of that, either through ritual, through plant cleansing, through whatever, but it really kind of tries to get at the same thing, perhaps in a more powerful way, because you're not really using as many words, mm -hmm. um, but, but you're really trying to connect to the expression of whatever ill or whatever block is in the way of a person really having full expression of self. Wow. Um, now I'm without words. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty rare, but that is, I mean, again, it's kind of like, it makes perfectly good sense that, um, you know, and today we get so wrapped up in how we do things. We need a quick fix yeah. and we need things done in a, a very prescriptive way. Even our policies yeah. and our guidelines and have all these restrictions that pull us further and further away of the natural way we did things before, as you said, there was sort of this Western way of thinking of the doctor as the technician. Yeah. Um, does a natural healer have to think about, oh, I've only got 40 minutes or I only have 30 minutes, or do you have the time right. that's the time that's needed to do what you need to do? Exactly. You have the time, you know, the, 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 there's, uh, it's, it's not time-based. It is, it's not mm -hmm. left brain. It's not a linear process. It is a creative process. There's no payment usually. It's, it's usually something that is um, done as a donation or payment mm -hmm. in kind. The relationship is really the most sacred thing that, that uh, one can, can engage in. It's that connection, which I think is also mm -hmm. similar to psychotherapy. And it really is through whatever the healer you know, has as, as their expertise. You know, some, some curanderos are experts in, in, in plant medicine. Some are experts in body manipulation. Mm -hmm. um, some are experts in cleansings, uh, spiritual cleansings. It's that really, uh, that, that ability to really be present with the person, to assess and to use whatever knowledge and skills that you have before you. Well, I could imagine people who sometimes struggle with the idea of, you know, the, the pathologizing and the diagnosis and the you know, even thinking, oh, I have a mental illness and I really kind of don't want to go um, to treatment. You know, the way that you're articulating the role of the person and the healer within with somebody facilitating that healing process and the power of the person, because sometimes I think in mental health care, um, sometimes we lose sight of the power of the person and everything is imposed on the person yes. versus helping the person find that healer within themselves. You know, and it makes me also think about um, the role of, you know, uh, lay folks too, like um, lay providers, lay supporters. When I think of, you know, promotoras, for example, yeah. and the role of a promotora in the community. And again, I, I know that is now, um, there's much favor for that in the U.S. now, either in the, the role 
role of a community health worker, community worker, or for a promotora. So can you talk a little bit about the role of a promotora? Like, what is that? And, um, you know, what, what do they actually do? Yeah, so, the, you know, the promotora is a, a model that has existed now for almost 15 years. It really, I think, was a way originally of trying to deal with the shortage of you just before this podcast, we were having a conversation about the percentage of African-American psychiatrists. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- that this model, um, you know, came to existence because of the shortage of Latino professionals in the medical field. And so when you think about the, the lack of Latino professionals in the medical field and you think about the huge number of uh, people of color who are marginalized, don't have access to care, are living in remote areas where it's difficult to receive services such as the farm fields and, and labor camps, uh, you know, throughout our countries, that the, the idea of the uh, promotor was to educate individuals from the community on sort of basic concepts of health and wellness, and then have them go out into the community, knock on doors, and really educate people about the importance of health literacy, understanding why it's good for you to go to the doctor, why you got to, you know, have your shots, why you got to get a physical exam, all of that. And so now I think that we've moved into the realm of having that same concept uh, apply to mental health. And so we educate individuals from the community, some with lived experience, um, some not, to be able to educate our communities about the importance of, for example, fighting stigma against mental illness. As Mm -hmm. we know, still a huge taboo in our communities to talk about having emotional vulnerabilities, trauma, sexual abuse, all of that. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the the, promotor can actually be a bridge and get into spaces that, you know, some health professionals and quote unquote experts are not going to have the wherewithal and are not going to have the capacity to be able to do. So I think the next question is, is how do we as the sort of professionals in the field uh, support this movement so that we can see it not as a competition to what we try to do, but really as an extension um, and an integration of a model that can really be multidisciplinary. Yes. Oh, you know, three snaps, four snaps, clap, clap, clap. I am like all on board with that. (laughs) You know, last uh, we talked, I saw a beautiful building going up in Mexico (laughs) (laughs) that I want to go lay a brick. I want to go do something there um, because um, it it just sounds so wonderful, the creation that uh, you're endeavoring to to make. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? I don't want to spill the beans. Sure, I'd love to. So um, about 15, 17 years ago, I went on a trip to Baja because it was one part of Mexico I had not really visited. So I took a bus tour from Tijuana and stopped all along the peninsula. And the idea was to make it to La Paz. Mm -hmm. But on the pathway, I discovered this magical town called Todos Santos, All Saints, and um, got off the bus and never got back on again. There was just, you know, something very magical about that place, uh, you know, the, the, the mountains, the desert, the ocean all together creates this really interesting environment where, you know, based on the height of, of the land and all it creates these little valleys that are very fertile and it, um, it's just the diversity of life and 
so magical. So I decided to, at that point, take whatever money I had saved up and buy land. And the idea for me was, you know, so much of so much of the most beautiful land in Mexico is being sold uh, to international interest and it's disappearing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very tragic that, you know, most, most people that are from that land will probably never get to enjoy the ocean and the beaches that, you know, are, are, are part of that environment um, and won't have access to it. So the first intention for me was to preserve something of my homeland and then use it for healing purposes. And so back then I thought, well, one day I could have a wellness center. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, fast forward, I think the time goes by so fast that in the last two years I've realized, oh my God, it's been 17 years have gone by and the land is just sitting there. So I started to like really focus on building something. And um, now, you know, there's a there's a beautiful building there. It, uh, it has four condo units. The idea is to expand it to, you know, another eight units. But the most important thing, the first thing that I built on there was a Temescal, which is, you know, a sort of native sweat lodge mm-hmm. for healing uh, rituals. Um, and so the idea for me is to just um, start hosting groups of people that are interested in exploring native healing traditions um, and to do so in a sacred space, you know, close right by the waters and close to the elements and close to nature and, and really just get a chance for us to connect mm-hmm. to this collaborative communal wisdom. You know, in, in my dream, I, I see um, ability for uh, healers of all types and walks of life just coming together to build community and to share of their gifts with others and, and to um, really explore, you know, healing from, from our various traditions, from our various teachings and, and share that knowledge with each other, share that knowledge with the communities that surround us uh, to really create, a, you know, a, a self-sustainable community that is 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 not about competition is not about trying to be the top dog it really is just about sharing space with family and friends and 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 creating a an, an intentional community that mm-hmm. really is all about healing and balance and, and all of that so so it's it's there um i've had um i've had a couple of of, of ceremonies already um with you know friends and and family from all over the place uh and it's just powerful to, you know, come together in a space like that huh. um, and see what, you know, what, what happens for people, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, ha- what happens for people that come into that space. It's beautiful to see. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing the pictures and I think you were standing on top of one of the buildings as it was not fully built, but, uh, um, and I think, you know, to one side, you could see the ocean and the other side, you could see the mountains and, yeah. you know, it was, uh, you know, the, the power of nature too, yes. um, is, uh, so incredibly healing because, you know, many of us, you know, still are stuck in city life, yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. you know, I want to be able to see the stars, but there are too many lights. I can't see the stars and that sort of thing. And, and those kind of things, you know, feed people, yeah. um, you know, it's kind of like fuel. For yeah. us, you know, for for our souls, so to speak. So yeah. it sounds really, really powerful. You know, as we think about our Black and Brown communities, you know, especially our uh, uh, Latin, uh, Latino, Latinx, and we're using different terms, um, communities. What are some of the things that you know you think are areas where we should 
focus on especially mental health, emotional well-being needs. And I don't, I don't mean to separate mental health from physical health per se, but you know, to help someone be their most emotionally healthy. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, especially now we're coming out of COVID. There's a lot of still racial reckoning. People have lost their jobs. And, you know, our essential workers are primarily black and brown people who have been so disproportionately impacted during this time. What are some things that we need to be thinking about in particular? Well, I think, uh, I think really uh, we have to value the connection to community. And I think, you know, sometimes if we work for these big institutions, these government institutions, we're almost kind of, we almost shy away from really that personal contact, that, that personal bridge with communities, because you know, I think in some ways we start to create an antagonistic relationship with uh, African-American, Latino, Native American communities that say, come knock on the door and say, you know, we're not getting help. We're not getting the services. We're not receiving the care that we need. And I think that oftentimes, instead of creating open spaces for that conversation and that dialogue to be explored in a safe space, these institutions tend to cringe away from that and see that as criticism and see that as an attack on how they're doing business. So rather be, sometimes rather than becoming more flexible, um, they become more rigid. And then that adds to the tension between the institution and the community. So I think that the first step is to really truly create welcoming spaces where these difficult dialogues can truly be held in a uh, safe, welcoming, receptive space and not penalize the people that are coming to tell you that they're not receiving care. I think that there's also a huge population in our communities that's still asleep mm-hmm. and not knowledgeable of the forces that really keep somebody disempowered mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, as Paulo Freire talked about, circles de concientización, circles of consciousness raising, where we become self-aware of all the forces that are in operation that are impacting our ability to move and to empower ourselves, to understand our surroundings with a conscious mind um, geared towards change. I think that once people become aware of their status and really we begin to address this idea of learned helplessness that mm-hmm. you know we're not powerless, this is not our intended fate. And if we begin to really confront that reality or that perception of reality, then I think, you know, dialogue can start to happen and we can start to strategize about how to move forward. I think that there is a magical time right now where there's a small window of opportunity that's opening up to have transformative dialogues and to have action-based conversations. But if we continue to give the power to the structures that have been in place and, and begin to invite them to engage with us in conversation, we will miss that window of opportunity yes. because power is not going to consent anything. And as Paulo Freire said, it is the job of the oppressed to at once liberate themselves from oppression and in the process liberate their oppressor. It really is upon us as, as you know, being the recipients 
of oppression, of marginalization, of colonization, of all of these forces that have impinged upon us for generations mm-hmm. to understand the weight of all of that mm-hmm. and to have, have this cathartic realization and commitment to change regardless of whatever it takes for us to do that. And then to bring that to our community and then to watch the powers change. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we don't quite always get. We're still knocking on door of those that have power and asking for permission, asking for recognition, for validation. And that's just that that's never going to give us the transformation that is so needed. Yes, this is exactly what is an unapologetically black unicorn. (laughs) I mean, you've you've just sort of summed it up right there as, um, you know, realizing that we have the power. And I think it's turned upside down that we think, well, they have the power and we have to go sort of bowed head asking permission and be empowered. No, you don't need to give me yeah. your power. I got my own power. So, um, yes. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I love, you know, uh, Shirley Chisholm and, you know, bring your, bring your own um, folding chair. And, and I kind of take that a step further and I say, well, no, we have our own table. We have our own chairs. You all need to bring your folding chair to our table and listen to what mm-hmm. we have to say and participate in our conversations and our spaces rather than, you know, sometimes it's the setting up by the powers that be, which kind of, to me, sometimes feels like, well, I, I just ended up in a deficit position. Why are you setting it up? Why aren't we setting it up together? Yeah. You know, or why aren't we, why don't we co-produce the whole thing? These are really powerful messages to all of us about, now to say, you know, no matter where we are in our life, we have this power within us and being able to partner with others. If you haven't found that power yet, because I didn't always think I had it. (laughs) Somebody had to help me realize, well, it's in there. You see it, you see it. I'm like, Oh wow. Well, there it is. And then once it was unleashed, unapologetically black unicorn, yeah, can't put it back. So um, that's right. You know, and, and, and I think that the, the, the force of multi-generational oppression of, you know, of, This, this idea of collective consciousness, the, the pain of our ancestors being visited upon us and the next generation, like that stuff is real. Yes. And if we don't take a moment to unpack all of that and to really get where we fit in in the context of these historical narratives and, and what has happened to our ancestors and what has happened to our families and what we have inherited as a result of that. Like if we're not aware of that, it's very difficult for us to really understand what we're operating in. It is yes. that consciousness. It is that reality. So this oppression that we're living in wasn't just created with Trump. It wasn't just created, you know, with previous administrations. It has been created through centuries yes. of oppression, torture, of dehumanization of people. And we have inherited that history. Yes. So we have to be aware of that in order for us to really move with that consciousness into transformation. Yeah. And I think understanding to the intention with, with which it was done, it wasn't accidentally done. You know, there was intention when I um, visited West Africa um, off the coast of Senegal to Gori Island to uh, see where people were enslaved before um, the transatlantic, you know, I want to call it a trip because that wasn't that that wasn't the kind of trip you would want to take, but certainly you know put on the um, uh, ships uh, to to uh, uh, the New World as it was called. It was really interesting to I had heard of the door of door of no return. I had seen pictures of the door of no return, but when you actually go and see it, 
what was striking to me was that it was no wider and no taller than an average human being at the time. Mm-hmm. So that when somebody and, and, and thick um, to the point where when the ship pulled up and opened the door to the hull, there was no looking to the left. There was no looking to the right. You couldn't um, squeeze um, in any kind of opening. Once you went through that door, you went straight on into the hull of the ship. It was built with the intention of making sure that that cargo, which was money, was Chattel slavery means that chattel is money, um, mm-hmm. it's property. There was no way they were going to lose a dime. Yeah. So the intentionality of it all was what struck me. I was like, these people were no joke. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to build it in such a way that it would continue to subjugate people all the way until t- today. And yeah. when you see that, that there's that intentionality That's kind of when I also had an understanding of our way forward also has to say it have that same level of intentionality. We didn't didn't get here by accident. There was this intention. So the way to kind of build our way forward, um, you know, with our collective conscious and understanding what has happened to us also has to be done with extreme intention. That's right. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that we got to meet each other. I, again, now I'm remembering the first time we, we met, um, I think you came up to me and you, you said your name and yeah. I already knew who you were. Right. And I was like, okay, I can't even repronounce that because you just said it so beautifully, which is like, I was like, Jorge Partida del Toro. And then you said it and I was like, okay, wait, what? I just butchered your name. So I'm going to ask you to say your name, Dr. Partida for us. Sure. It's, it's uh, Jorge Partida del Toro. Yeah. Lovely. And also that uh, I, we were somewhere, we were out uh, somewhere and I was like, I took a picture because was it a rum that was a del Toro rum? No, tequila, partida. Yeah, it was tequila. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Is this a, is this a very common name or is your family like tequila magnets? <laughs> so you told me the little story about that. We won't get yeah. into that today. That'll that'll be for podcast part two. But right. um, <laughs> I mean, it was an immediate. You know, this is my, and I say that's why I call you my my brother because it was like this soul connection. And I'm so happy that we, uh, you know, got connected and have uh, remained connected and, and friends and yes. fearless in the fight. Yeah, me too, yeah. Karis. Me too. It's been a real blessing to to come yeah. to know you and and to share such close space with you. Um, I do remember that time that we met too, and and what I remember about it is just the warmth of your smile and and the welcoming of of your friendship. Uh, it was immediate. It was um, it was real. It was deep from the very beginning. Um, yeah. And that's just who you are. You you radiate. Uh, your essence and you welcome and embrace and I've never forgotten that reception mm-hmm. I never will so thank you for for being yeah. such a good friend we we all need that in this world especially now so thank you for being on the the podcast I think um you know this um, will help get the word out to hopefully people who feel that they are disempowered or not connected that there are ways in which we can move forward. There are ways in which we can find our power in our space and, um, you know, move to levels of being unapologetically Black unicorns, if that is our calling. So thanks for joining me and um, remember to tune in next week. 